You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new film, Boogeyman, The Lee Atwater Story, our guest today, writer and director Stephen Forbes, traces the life of the man who played a crucial role in America's shift to the right. Following Lee Atwater's rise from a blues-playing rogue to chairman of the Republican Party, Forbes is an Emmy-nominated director. His award-winning documentary, One More Dead Fish, was broadcast on PBS. Formerly a cinematographer, Forbes shot five feature films and is a 2006 New York Foundation for the Arts fellow. Boogeyman began screening Wednesday, October 3rd at the Lemley Sunset Five in Los Angeles. Stephen Forbes, welcome to film school. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, nice to have you with us. How are you doing today? Everything okay? Is the stock market affecting your uh, stableness today? Or? <laughs> no, it just makes me laugh because I don't have any stocks. Yeah, well, join the club. Yeah. We're, we're here. <laughs> yeah. We're here. We don't know exactly to cheer or cry, but we're not affected in a serious way. Let the fat cats go down in flames. Yeah. <laughs> it feels that way, doesn't it? And I, I mean, it's so counterintuitive. Certainly, I know there are consequences to that. There, we, I'm certain of that. But there is this sort of, you know, well, let them, let them eat cake. You know, that's how I feel about the, the fat cats right now. So Exactly. And, you know, i got to say, too, I'm glad that I'm finally in film school. <laughs> it's a place I never really went. Yeah. Well, well here you are, and uh, no tuition. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> nice. I was told just get out there and do it, you know, and I, I started working as a PA. I started out as an intern, and I PA'd for two years in the business, but the whole time I was working on these sets with, like, these incredible cinematographers like Darius Kanji and Bill right. Butler, wow. and just, like, studying these guys, you know. I was like a spy in the house of love. <laughs> well, did you, uh, now, what did you take away from that? It just, what was the main lesson you got from all that experience as far as cinematography goes? You know, I really do believe in production values. Hmm. I believe in a respect for the craft and the medium and just really, really studying it. And um, ultimately, a lot of times in my own work, I choose more unadorned direct style you know yeah i i do think that it's story and deep character development which speaks to people and i think it's great if you can learn the technical and you can achieve whatever you want i had a lot of stuff that was really kind of slick in the film these incredible cinematic sequences that i shot down south ultimately i stripped them all out because you know Part of finding your voice as a filmmaker is, you know, scraping away everything that's unnecessary and creating an emotional journey for the viewer. Now, when you say uh, the cinematic uh, episodes there in the South, were you just doing landscape or? No, I mean, a big part of this was me taking a journey find the roots of Lee Atwater. Uh, Here's this guitar-picking southern rascal who comes from South Carolina to get Ronald Reagan elected president, um, saves uh, George Bush's presidency in 88, becomes a mentor to his son W, teaches him how to campaign, 
and um, has another little protege people may have heard of, a guy named Carl Rove. So I was just fascinated by this guy. You know, how does one man have such an incredible impact on American history? And so I went on the trail to study this guy and find out how he did it. Now, when's the first time you, you heard of Lee Atwater? I saw him up on stage, you know, after really? the 88 election, oh. jamming with, you know, Carla Thomas and Chuck Jackson and these R&B legends. And, you know, I'm a musician as well from way back, and I was jealous. I'm like, hey, how come this guy gets to do all that? And I started reading press about him, and it, it was, made him sound like, you know, the second coming of Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I was <laughs> just like... Wow, how does this amazing blues guitarist, you know, go on stage with black musicians to celebrate just having run the most racist presidential election <laughs> in 150 years? Yeah. And that's deep character stuff there, too, yeah. you know? So, you know, I wanted to, to explain that. I wanted to get into this guy's psyche and find out what made him tick. Well, this it would have been an easy thing um, from if you took a particular point of view about Lee Atwater and really vilified and really driven home some of the sort of the seedier and uh, less attractive things about his actions during the, that period of time. But this film does a very, very good job of painting a very a, a broad portrait of Lee Atwater. Uh, you get the, the good and the not so good. You get a, you get a person in, with this documentary that you can uh, identify with, you can understand, and uh, you feel like at the end of the arc of this story, uh, you have um, some very strong feelings, mixed feelings, but very strong feelings uh, about about him and his life. Well, thank you. You know, and I really believe, you know, the ultimate success of a film is if it gets you to feel some empathy. Yeah. You know, get in there to that character, and it's fascinating to take this self-described political assassin, this Machiavellian guy who would cut your heart out and feed it to you, and as a character, try to probe within that, see what might drive somebody, see what the deep conflict inside them is. And ultimately, with a guy like that, you know, if you just make a film trying to, you know, bash him, what you're doing is letting everyone else off the hook. We don't have to take his journey. We don't have to acknowledge the, the things we share with him. And, you know, I saw him as a deep American archetype, the obsession with winning, you know, the rascal, rogue exterior and the pranks and this deep sense of humor, but ultimately, you know, being driven by being number one and, you know, on, on his deathbed, you know, dying of cancer, it's not enough for Lee. This ultimate amoral hustler is, finds himself desperately searching for truth in the way that in this crisis you guys talked about. I think we're all searching for a little bit of truth in our politics right now. You know, just quickly... Uh, a particular question I have here at the very end, Ed Rollins is 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 he quoting Mary Matlin about uh, the Bible? Yeah, he is. Okay, you know. I, that was, I was so my guess is that she lied about that. Well, it's just so fascinating trying to figure out. It's like a Rashomon thing yeah. about his death. The media reported it one way; nobody agrees with that spin, and everyone's trying to figure out: Did he repent? How genuine was it? He was obviously searching for truth, you know, and yeah. that Bible quote has been so talked about already by people, and, you know, there are, he, you see photographs of him with other Bibles. So, you know, I was going for the emotional resonance of this story and letting his friends weigh in with different opinions, but yeah. that's definitely caused a lot of conversation. Well, 
Now, you have a... Go ahead, Mike. No, no, no. I was just wondering, you have so many people that you've interviewed in this, and he did a great job on that, and, and a, a wide variety, too, from uh, Ishmael Reed to uh, Joe Connison. Uh, I mean... Uh, Eric Tom, Alderman. Yeah, Tom Turnipseed. Uh, and then, then uh, also uh, Tucker Eskew. Did they, did they know who they were going to be paired with here and how they were going to be uh, portrayed? No, they had no idea, you uh-huh. know, and I think it was one of my goals to talk to both sides here, not just make some, you know, Michael Moore film, which, you know, God bless him, he makes incredible work, but I wanted those closest to lead a way in, but I also wanted, you know, marginalized voices on the left, people who actually really probably understood Atwater better than the big Democratic strategist, a guy like Joe Connison, who's seen as an unreconstructed liberal. He understands what was going on, and he studied Atwater in a way that the big strategists probably didn't. So, you know, I really reject this phony divisions in American culture and in media. Why shouldn't Ed Rollins be in the same movie as a media critic like Ishmael Reed? It just Mm -hmm. provides this richness of all these different voices duking it out over Lee's impact on America and let the viewer sort it out for themselves. We're speaking with Stephen Forbes. The film is Boogeyman, the Lee Atwater story. It's coming out this Friday. It'll be opening in Los Angeles at the Lemley... Lemley 5. 5. Yeah. Sunset, Sunset 5. Yeah. Sunset 5. Come on out, people, because you know as film buffs, if you don't come out the first weekend, yeah. we might not be around to fight yeah, That's week. a great a great theater, too, there on, on Sunset. It's a fun place to be. So it's, it's a great film to watch, but it's a fun place to be. Too, exactly. Too. It really is. One person that stuck in my head in this film is uh, Michael Dukakis. And especially, uh, I, I like the technique you use of just showing them clips from the past and and uh, the Willie Horton ad and whatnot. And, and Michael Dukakis' situation right now in his life, he, he seems like such a uh, uh, humble man. Uh, he, he's not. He's certainly not living in any sort of luxury right now. Did Did you have that feeling about him? Do you have any sense of where he felt he uh, had journeyed from after losing that election? Yeah, you know, I love that you would use that word. Um, there's obviously so much resonance in seeing a guy who could have been, you know, leader of the quote free world, just making breakfast, making breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know, there, there's an emotional moment there where you actually feel for a victim of Atwater's tactics. And I think, you know, it's, it's a moment people really talk about in the film, but I definitely didn't mean to portray him as a broken man, as a defeated man. I, you know, I think it's a, a little inspiring that the guy goes about his way, you know, in, in true Mike Dukakis fashion. He picks up trash on the street and throws it in a trash can when he's walking down the street. He's just a great guy who really stands for, you know, this humility and this idea of the American dream. The fascinating thing is with the brilliance of an operative like Atwater made him look like a scary foreigner and turned an elitist like Bush Sr., um, elite member of the old wasp oligarchy, into a cowboy boot, pork rind, eaten southerner. Um, And they've been doing that in race after race, and it was fascinating to me to really ask his closest friends and elite strategists, how do you pull this stuff off? Actually, my reaction uh, was slightly different. Um, when you show Dukakis watching some of the uh, footage of uh, the Willie Horton ad and the, 
this uh, infamous uh, trip he took in the in the tank and his reaction. I thought he came off uh, very well in the sense that he seemed very at peace and at ease to some to some degree. It sounds like from the clips that Kitty wasn't quite as reconciled <laughs> to what had happened and, and, and his reaction to some of those things. But uh, and uh, yeah, watching Kitty, him, his wife. Kitty, yeah, Kitty Dukakis. Watch now. Watching him make breakfast, yeah, you just what you described, the sort of the sense of somebody who could have been, you know, commander in chief of the largest military in the world and free, leader of the free world would have be. You see him there, but he so seemed free free, so called. <laughs> thank you, thank you. But he does seem like a man who um, who has come to some peace with what 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 happened to him. I'm sure there's some bitterness there, but uh, did you have that sense when you were talking to him? Yeah, totally. I do think he's at peace, and you know. It is interesting, this tactic that I hit on of trying to bring history to life by putting these old clips up on a monitor, you know, and he was never in the same room as as Atwater, who was trashing him to the media and used just, you know, fear as a political tactic, but mockery that you would use the shot of him wearing a helmet in a tank and just drive American opinion against Mike Dukakis. I was intrigued by the you know, going back and giving Mike a chance to talk back to Lee, to create a conversation across generations and use the power of film to, you know, create this incredibly dramatic moment because you're showing people this incendiary footage and you're getting them to react to it in real time. You're kind of putting them on the spot. Of course, after I hit on this brilliant idea, I realized basically just doing what Al Mazels did back in Gimme Shelter. <laughs> but hey, steal from the best. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, well, th- there's another uh, reaction that uh, that you you uh, get from him in, in in regard to showing the Willie Horton ad. Uh, and just, I remember watching, as I was watching it again, uh, having remembered the election, my reaction was visceral when I, the first time I saw it, which was, this, which was it's, this is a racist ad. But what I didn't remember, and what you picked up on, was the, of all the pr- prisoners who went through the revolving door, the only one to look up at the camera was the, the black prisoner. And maybe that was what triggered my visceral reaction to it at the, at the first time I saw it. Sure, and I mean... Here at film school, you know, I'm sure you guys know how to study film, and it's it's actually something that is crucial for the entire American public to learn how to do. People got to become media savvy, and you know, they did a review of the film. The reviews have been really great, but you know, the real right wing paper in New York, the New York Post, published an article whose major point was that this is laughable. Just because a black guy looks at the camera doesn't mean anything. And this analysis is totally wrong. And what they do with these subliminal racist tactics in advertising that you're seeing in the McCain campaign is they do it so brilliantly that it's hard to even talk about. And they call you crazy when you try to accuse Barack of playing the race card. But the fascinating thing is people who remember revolving doors will tell you, and they've told me time and time again, oh, that was the ad with all those black people walking through the revolving door. Yeah. They actually remember it as being full of black people, although there's only one guy. And it's using these film techniques in an incredibly powerful way that Sam Donaldson explains in the film, which is kind of fascinating to really find out how they do this stuff. And actually, I have to tell you that uh, for those who don't remember or weren't around, there was a f- this commercial, which 
aired. I don't know how much it aired. I forgot. What uh, it, almost very little. Yeah. Only aired it a few times paid. But, but was, Atwater knew how to use the media as an echo chamber to get them to repeat it hundreds of times for free when they talked about right. it to further yeah. the message. It was it was not quite the same uh, way that the so-called uh, the uh, the Lyndon Johnson ad about Barry Goldwater and the little girl picking the flowers. But which was only played once, and this one's only played a few times. It's the same idea. The media picks up on it, runs with it, becomes an ad campaign unto itself. But this had a tremendous impact on the race. That uh, they it allowed people to talk about race in a racially divis- divisive way. But really, the Bush campaign was able to distance itself itself by calling it a policy issue, a policy decision, when everyone knew what they were really talking about. Sure, and it was just shocking to go back and see that stuff. And, you know, they deny it to the hills at the time. Now, you know, I've got these elite Republican operatives like Roger Stone going, yeah, it was racist, completely racist. The other ad, actually, he still won't admit that the the official ad was racist, but he will admit that the other one is. And he's saying things like Atwater was putting millions of dollars into the so-called independent ad, which is completely illegal. Yeah. In American politics, these guys now, years later, will admit this incredible stuff about this. And, you know, I was even shocked to go back and listen to Bush Sr.'s inaugural speech, which one of the joys of making this film is experiencing these things and doing your research firsthand. In the movie, you see excerpts from his official, you know, thousand points of light, kinder, gentler speech, which are racist fear-mongering rhetoric of the most vile sort. And people see that in the film, and they're staggered that the media never talked about that either. Yeah. We're speaking with uh, Stefan Forbes. The film is Boogeyman, the Lee Atwater story. Uh, in getting all that uh, footage, uh, the archival footage, did you run into any difficulties at all, or was that pretty much uh, just going to the, the film libraries and finding it? Yeah, the difficulty was just wading through hundreds of hours of stuff yeah. in hopes that you find that one nugget that makes you jump out of your seat. And I mean, <laughs> there is such, so much of the stuff in the reporting is so incredibly boring, but it just becomes worth it when you find, like, this footage of Lee Atwater calling W his number one soul brother. Yeah. And you see them do that soul shake up on the stage, and you're just like, oh, my God, I feel like I'm looking through the Bush family's private home movies. Yeah. Boy, it's hard to to look at George. I mean, I believe me, never had a, an, a, a very high opinion of George W. But uh, watching him with Atwater, it it really kind of fills in the 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 blank spots and and, and, a, and a portrait of him. I get it much more than I really ever did before. Just how much of a disciple uh, of not only his, of Lee Atwater's campaign tactics, but his governing tactics are very much reflected in a Lee Atwater. Carl Rove, but you could say really Lee Atwater kind of tactics. Sure, and you start to see how yeah. Atwater wrote the campaign playbook. Yeah. You know, spin is everything. The truth doesn't matter. You can make a race about anything. Reagan just sold arms to terrorists and lied about it on national TV. Bush was involved. They picked a black guy who would got out of prison and made the entire race about that. Rove took that into the White House. He used that kind of deception as actual a basis to govern from inside the White House on. And you can see Atwater's influence even in Sarah Palin. Oh, yeah. She's a culture warrior just like W was. And 
it's something that the Democrats don't understand. In this film, actually, Lee's buddies explain the secret playbook in this film. I'm not even sure the Democrats um, will get it even now. Well, it, it's an answer to the question that anyone can be president. The, uh, the Atwater's genius, if that's the right word to use, was to to make George W. Bush the guy that any that you embodied. Anyone can be president, and Sarah Palin is the modern uh, version of the more up to date version of anyone can be president. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's stuff. This film, people come out going like, "Wait, this moment in the debate, this thing McCain did." I get it now. Yeah. I see why McCain pulled even with Obama at one of the worst moments for the Republican Party in the last century. <laughs> reason They're why, using the hot water playbook. A reason why why Obama should be 25 points up in the polls and he's not. If he studied Lee Atwater, he would be. Yep. That's <laughs> one more reason to go uh, see this film uh, this weekend at the uh, Lemley Sunset Five in Los Angeles. Uh, there is... Interesting part right at the beginning, and it kind of gets left behind during the whole process. But um, Atwater really would have become a Democrat yeah. if if the cards had fallen differently. It wasn't a matter of policy of, with him. It was just I think he wanted to be at at that point in time uh, a big fish in a little pond because the Republicans at that point in time weren't weren't the the party in favor. Uh, did you get that feeling all the way through that he he really wasn't about policy at all? He was simply about winning, and and uh, he was a, a a man at conflict with himself. Sure, yeah. yeah, and you know he understood that they didn't have the youth. Everyone was smoking dope, you yeah. know, partying, um, you know, anti-war marches, and Lee realized he could. That's where the power would go. His friends are still baffled about that to that to this day, you know, but he. He reshaped the Republican Party. He made them cool. The Democrats have all the Hollywood stars, all the musicians. The GOP had Lee Atwater, and he's a hero to them to this day for his ruthless take-no-prisoners politics. It's fascinating to see, you know, as the film goes on, what lies behind that, that conflict behind him, the guilt that he felt, you know, about what he'd done, the, the fear that he used as a weapon came back to to really haunt him on his deathbed. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such an American story, and it's all of us, you know. Winning is everything for us as well in this culture. And we can take in a journey with Lee. We can start to see the huge cost to our nation of that stuff, you know, with humor and a lot of blues music. Yeah. Well, it is a, it is a terrific documentary. Um, and, uh, again, I have to tell you, I, I was... I was so pleasantly surprised that uh, with this full portrait of of Lee Atwater, uh, and 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 you see, you really do see uh, it, the uh, the rippling effect of him uh, to this very moment. Uh, so, if you're interested at all about what's going on in this country and why it's gotten to the point it has gotten, uh, you should really check this film out. It'll be, as we said, the Lumley Five Sunset opening this Friday. Uh, Stephen Forbes, thank you for being here on Film School. Yeah, it's been a huge pleasure. I think I learned something about film. (laughs) To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.